Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Patrick Radden Keith. Patrick is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of 2019's award winning and best selling book, Say Nothing A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland. He joins me today to discuss his newest book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, which is all about the family behind Purdue Pharma, OxyContin, and the opioid epidemic. Due to pandemic logistics and craziness, Patrick had to record with me while he was outside. So please accept my apologies for the wind and background noise you'll hear throughout our conversation. However, I do think it adds a little investigative journalism realism to the episode. The Stacks Book Club pick for May is Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. We'll be discussing the book on the podcast on Wednesday, May 26th with author Jenny Lee. If you're a fan of The Stacks and want to participate in our monthly virtual book club, join a community of other book lovers and get discounts on merch and a bunch of other perks, head over to Patreon to join The Stacks Pack. That's patreon.com slash the stacks. I could not make the show without the wonderful humans at the Stacks Pack, and this week I'm giving a special shout out and a thank you to some of our newest members, Whit McClure, Theodore G., Shannon West, Carla Pena, Maggie Fisher, Brandy Simmons, Rachel Zimmerman, Annie Treitman, Amanda Miller, and Jessica Pinkney Gill. Thank you all so much for your support of this podcast. All right, now it's time for you to hear my conversation with Patrick Radden Keith. Okay, everybody, I am so excited. I have been screaming at you from the internet about this book. And today I get to welcome Patrick Radden Keith, the author of Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Patrick, welcome to the Stacks. It's great to be with you. I, you have no idea how excited I am to talk to you. I actually read Say Nothing in December 2019, right before I gave birth to my twins. So I feel, I was, that was the book I was reading when I got induced. So I feel very close to you in a weird way. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, that's great to hear. Yeah. Yeah. You're part, you're part of my life. Um, So we start kind of in the same place always in about 30 seconds or so. Can you kind of tell us about Empire of Pain? Sure. So it's a book about um, 
three generations of a family, the Sackler family, and they are a one of the wealthiest families in the United States. They're very prominent philanthropic family whose name is on lots of museums and university buildings. But uh, the, the family fortune, it turns out, is actually largely derived from the marketing and sale of OxyContin, the uh, powerful painkiller that was one of the drugs that really sparked the opioid crisis. Amazing. I always think it's interesting that people lead with their philanthropy still. Do you, have you noticed that, that when people talk about them, they always lead with the philanthropy, even though now I think they have become sort of infamous about because of the OxyContin stuff? Yeah, I mean, to me, that was always the paradox and part of what I found so intriguing was that there was a, a kind of image management that the family had been very effective at for decades. And I do feel as though that's been um, kind of undone. I, even in the book, I even go through like when it, there's a series of Sacklers who die over the years. And there is this kind of fascinating thing where, you know, you get when Mortimer Sackler, one of the original three brothers dies in 2010, his obituary is all philanthropy at the very end. You know, there's like a little line about Oxycontin. And then when Jonathan Sackler, who's one of the second generation died just, just more recently, his obituaries were like all Oxycontin and the opioid crisis with hardly a mention of the philanthropy. So it has kind of flipped in the last few years. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, so, you wrote a piece in The New Yorker about – you write for The New Yorker, I should say that. Um, and you wrote a piece about the Sacklers in 2017, I believe. And mm -hmm. how did you go from that to deciding, I want to actually write a full-length book about these people? Yeah, so this is the third book that I've done that's grown out of a New Yorker piece. And um, – each one has been a little bit different, you know, with the, I, I wrote this book called The Snakehead, which is grew out of a piece that I published in my first piece actually ever for The New Yorker, which came out in 2006, and then Say Nothing, which started as a piece. And in both of those cases, like by the time I was finishing the piece, I just, I was new. There's a mm. book here. This one was different. Um, I wrote this big piece about the Sacklers and I, when I finished it, I was proud of the piece and I, I thought I had done what I set out to do, but I also felt as though... I could only get so close to the family. And to me, it wouldn't make for a very interesting book if you felt like you were looking at them through a telescope. Mm. Um, and so I sort of made a decision in 2017 that I don't think there's, you know, it would be totally possible to write a book, but not the kind of book I would want to write where you feel like you're in the room with them and you really come to know them. This is given that they were totally hostile to me and didn't want right. to give me interviews. So then it's this question of, well, how do you bring them alive as characters? And what changed was... A few things changed. One was that after the piece came out, this sometimes happens when I do a New Yorker piece. I feel like it's it's like I'm I'm shining the bat signal up at the sky. So mm. like suddenly, suddenly all these people came out of the woodwork who I hadn't talked to for the article, but who read the article and then they sought me out and they said, "Oh, I've known the family for years. You know, I was Richard's college roommate. I worked for the family. I worked at Purdue." And um, and then the other thing that happened was that a, a woman who's a big character in the third part of the book, Maura Healy, who's the the attorney general of Massachusetts, she sued, she did something no other, nobody else had done at that point. So a lot of states had sued the company, Purdue Pharma, about its role in the opioid crisis, but not the family. Mm. She sued the family members and she got access to all these documents. And so that was the kind of turning point for me, which she released a complaint in early 2019 with all these internal emails. And I just thought, I both thought, somebody's got to write a book because this is an important story and it's, and it's outrageous and somebody needs to tell it. And I also thought now there's a way for me to do it that would feel 
that would allow me to write the kind of book that I like to write, which is quite, um, um, you're right there with the characters and there's a kind of a, hopefully it reads a little bit like a novel where you, you feel like you're kind of absorbing the story through the lives of these people. And that had just been impossible up to that point, but it became possible then. Yeah. Oh man, it totally is. I, I was saying to someone that it was, it's almost like a thriller because you're waiting to find out what's going to happen. And even though I, I sort of know what's going to happen, I was like, but what's going to happen? I have sort of two follow-up questions to that. One is when you're writing at The New Yorker and you're writing these pieces, are you always sort of thinking, is there a book there or does it usually just pop out? I mean, because you write a ton for The New Yorker. Like you've been there for 15 years or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering like how often is that you think maybe there's a book versus the three that have actually turned into books? It's, that's a great question. I mean, I'm never thinking when I get into the a piece, oh, is this a book? It's more that it, it occurs to me. It's sort of, I realize it. I mean, the thing about The New Yorker is that I can spend a year working on an article and I can publish, you know, 14,000, 15,000 words. That's, that's a lot like usually that's that sort of scratches the itch usually that's enough and um but occasionally there are these moments where um i'm I'm almost taken by surprise where i feel like god i really even though it's a big long piece and i I spent so much time i feel like there's more story here it's all cliches all the but it's like you know it's the tip of the iceberg thing right where you just feel like oh there's so much more here um but no no i mean the weird thing is that i actually love what i love about my job more than anything else is the there's a very specific metabolism where I love to like parachute into a story totally immerse myself in it spend three four five six months on it write a big piece and then just walk away and move (laughs) on and like parachute into something else you know I'm not a I'm not somebody who has a great specialty uh, you know or a, a beat or something I keep returning to again and again and again and I like I mean different people are wired in different ways and I like that so really the books are more an exception where I'll finish right. a piece and, and want to kind of keep going over that same terrain that's so funny because one of the first things I wrote down when I found out that I was going to interview interview you was how do you decide what you're going to write about because all four of your books are totally different everything I feel like you write about in the New Yorker everything I've ever read is totally different so what is the thing that sparks you being like I do want to spend three to four months with this person place or thing or idea yeah I mean you know it's weird I honestly don't have there's not a system I wish I knew um <laughs> you know um I kind of know it when I see it um I mean I can tell you for sure that the there are journalists who kind of pick an issue mm-hmm. and then they sort of work backwards and figure out what's the story I'm trying to tell about the issue and that's almost never the approach that I take I almost always start with the story so like with say nothing it wasn't that I thought and now it's time to write about the troubles it was right. that this woman di- this woman died I read her obituary I said oh my god this is the most fascinating tragic interesting story imaginable and and it was through her life that I came into the troubles. And so it's, it, it's, I, I'm trying to think, I mean, there, are, I can't really think of any examples, I guess there's maybe one or two where I was like, you know, this is an issue that fascinates me. I'm going to write a piece about this issue and then kind of um, try and um, I almost think of it as like a, in Hollywood terms, it's like you cast a story. There are journalists who will pick an issue and then they, then they're casting. They're trying to find out well, who are the characters that I'm going to kind of, used to tell this story for me it always starts the other way around i'm interested in the characters first and foremost so you're 
kind of just like watching the news, reading the newspaper, have your eyes, ears open and hoping that something kind of sparks your interest? Is that sort of more your approach? Yeah, 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 very much. Um, and, you know, there's a whole kind of internal um, process at The New Yorker for this stuff, which it works differently for different writers. But every week there's an ideas meeting and people contribute ideas and I'll go to those sometimes. And it's it's cool. It's like anybody from the magazine can take part, but the price of admission is two or three ideas for articles. And you just sit around the table and, and talk about possible magazine stories. And um, those end up being part of a list, a big ideas list. And um, I'm always you know, I'm, I'm always kind of zealously like trying to get my hands on the new version of the list to yeah. see like, what are the cool, what are the cool new leads, you know? And then it's almost always the case that there's some amazing idea and I'm really excited about it. And then they're like, oh, you know, somebody's already doing it. Like sorry, mm. that, that one's already been claimed. Um, and then I'm, but, and you know, I think there are writers who uh, are assigned almost all of their ideas who who almost never come up with their own ideas. There are other writers who almost never take assignments. They're always pitching mm. their own ideas. I'd say I'm probably, I'm probably like two of mine to one of theirs. Got it. Um, so it varies, but yeah, I'm always on the lookout for stuff. And, and um, it is this strange thing where it's, I just kind of know instinctively most mm. of the time, like that's, yeah, that's got the ingredients that I, that excite me. I love this. I know we're supposed to be talking about your book and I'm about to get back to it, but I just want you to know that my dream is to be an investigative journalist, even though I have no interest in writing. I just really love reading investigative journalism. So yeah. talking to you is sort of like, you're like my literary Beyonce kind of vibes. Like I'm very excited. I want to know all the details. <laughs> I'm, I'm much more accessible. I'm a literary Beyonce, but yeah. Yes. But, I mean, uh, I haven't, I definitely have not gotten Beyonce on the podcast, but I'm going to keep trying. I hope she writes a book trying. one day. Absolutely. I'm sure she will. Um, okay, so back to Empire of Pain. One of the things, this is sort of a, a tie-in, actually. I want to know what it feels like, if you can explain, what it feels like to uncover something new or break a story or solve a mystery when you've been kind of immersed in this stuff. Because I know for Say Nothing, there you kind of had that moment for sure. And then um, in Empire of Pain, I feel like there was new stuff in this book that I was like, yo how did this happen? So I'm curious what that feels like as a voyeur, voyeur to investigative journalism. Yeah, it's a weird one. I, um, those are the most exciting moments and, um, they don't happen all that often. Um, so there's like another category of thing, which is less, it's the best way of putting this. I think there are some investigative journalists, particularly newspaper journalists who, all they think about is the scoop. They're not that, you know, they're always thinking about what's new in this. Mm -hmm. And they, and if there's an article or a book they're going through and they're just like, just tell me what's new. That's all I care. All they care about is like, what's moving the ball down the field in terms of, um, you know, what is known about something. And that's not me at all. And I, <laughs> like, I don't, cause I'm so interested in storytelling that a lot of the time, the things for me that I get most excited about are like an image or, a turn of phrase and it's not the kind of thing that would ever make it into the newspaper because it's not considered a huge scoop. But for me, it's, it's like, that's a tool that I can use to, to tell a story. And so I do along the way have those little things that actually are almost as exciting to me as the big ones. But yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of say nothing, I had this moment where I sort of figured out who murdered the, the 
woman in the who, who's this kind of a central figure who's murdered in 1972. Um, and in in this new book, there are a series of things like this. But to give you one example, um, now I discovered a suicide of a, a member of the family, um, and then discovered that 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 it, it was the son of one of the original Sackler brothers that he had struggled with, with drugs and addiction and mental illness. And um, so this is weird because um, for me, these are like some of the most exciting moments in my professional life because you, you feel like you've stumbled on something. And for me, I'm thinking, well, where is this going to go in the book and how am I going to tell this and how do I position this? So it's going to have the impact for the reader that it did for me when I made the discovery. And at the same time, the best way of describing this it's very weird because i have a sense in which i'm just thrilled it the part of me that's like a that is detached and as a writer and a reporter is really thrilled but at the same time these are human stories right so in the mm -hmm. case of gene mcconville like i was like whooping in my room when i made this discovery and then it was like half an hour before i realized I'm going to have to tell her adult children who murdered their mother. Right. Um, and then it kind of hits you like a ton of bricks and you realize it's, you feel self-conscious and actually kind of terrible about, right. um, you know, uh, like spiking the football. And it was similar here. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I feel, um, to put it mildly, less emotional connection to the Sacklers <laughs> than I do to the McConville children. But the, um, but even so, right. I mean, it's a tragic, tragic story about a, a, a kid who was, suffering and and think about the you know in this case he threw himself out of a window and i interviewed the doorman who was on the ground you know when he when he landed right who put a blanket over him and and um and even interviewing that doorman right like all these years later uh right. more, more than 40 years later like his experience of of um so it's a, it's it's a kind of a strange thing. I there was a there was a um, this is a very long answer and I'll I'll wrap it up but the but the there was that documentary that came out a few years ago about about Joan Didion and there was this amazing moment where she's talking about like the little girl is it that the like the little girl is doing LSD. There was some like crazy moment in slouching towards Bethlehem where she witnessed some kind of totally anarchic moment and and the interviewer asked her what was that what was that like? It must've been so traumatic to see this little girl is like this kind of victim of the 1960s. And there's this long pause. And then Joan Didion goes, it was gold. Like, <laughs> I, you know, she's like, I thought this is gold. Oh so there's that part of me, but I also never lose, lose sight of, um, you know, that these are real people. I'm like, Do you ever get scared? Like, Oh my God, now I have to tell everyone about this secret and like, what is going to happen to me? Like, I don't know. I would be, I would be scared is what I'm saying. <laughs> scared scared of what exactly? Well, I would like, I would be scared to break news because then I would be scared of repercussions or something, especially in the case of the Sacklers. Like they seem like really um, like they're going to be really nice to you when you break news about their family right, or like right. their shady dealings or whatever. So I don't know. I just reprisal. I mean, I don't want to give anything away in the book, but there is a part in your author's note where we hear about sort of perhaps maybe what the Sacklers um, thought would be fun to do to you, perhaps it to stress you out or whatever. Yeah. So I would be scared of like that sort of stuff or being told like you didn't prove it enough and so you can't right. use it or like, I don't know. I also have a lot yeah. of anxiety. So <laughs> this is another reason why I'm not an investigative journalist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that stuff is weird. I, with the Sacklers specifically, a lot of the stuff that I was finding out was really appalling things that they said and did. Mm -hmm. And 
it was pretty incontrovertible. It was like mm. I had emails. Right. Um, you know, and in some cases, people are leaking me like private emails by the Sacklers from fairly recently. And that stuff didn't make me all that nervous. I mean, I'm sure they were unhappy that those came out, right. but it's tricky because it's like, it's very hard for them to respond to that stuff. Right, so right, you, right, so right. even now, I mean, what you were alluding to, and it's not a big spoiler, but like I had a private investigator out in front of my house. They've been threatening to sue me for two years. They've made it as unpleasant right. as it, they possibly could. Um, but the funny thing is like whenever I go to them and I'm like, Hey, like you said this, but then I have this other email that kind of seems to contradict that. Like, how do you account for this evidence that I have? They never respond to mm -hmm. that stuff because they can't respond right. because the answers, you know, aren't good for them. Right. Um, and so that stuff doesn't make me too nervous. I have had funny moments along the way. I wrote a big piece about, about Chapo Guzman mm. um, in 2014 for The New Yorker that was, you know, at that point, I think there was probably more detail about Chapo. I had written an earlier piece about him for The New York Times Magazine. And um, there's probably more detail about him in that piece than had really been out there in the world up to that point. And there were things that I like, didn't give any thought to at all. But like, I found out that when he was on the run, you know, he was moving from apartment to apartment and kind of... Um, totally underground and he had this whole sort of logistical thing and he's really into gourmet food and so like one of the things is when you're Chapo Guzman and you're you know you're like a billionaire drug trafficker but you're in hiding but how do you get your gourmet food and there was a whole thing there but the other was that he <laughs> that he need he always needed to have his Viagra and um like part there was this whole logistical deal where like there were the, they always needed to make sure that they could like keep him in Viagra and um, I quoted some DEA guy who was like monitoring the wiretaps. And he was like, yeah, he loved Viagra. Like he ate it like candy. And um, <laughs> and I, I just thought that was a fun detail and I published it. But it was funny because somebody, after it came out, somebody who, like a source of mine from Mexico was like, you realize that this is like the most macho country in the world. And that this is like the most macho man in this country. And you just told the world that he right. like uses Viagra. Um, <laughs> So there are these moments like that where I didn't, it didn't even occur to me that that might be something that would upset him. Um, and then somebody afterwards had to say, like, you should have, you should have, uh, you know, thought very carefully. You should have been more scared. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Basically, yeah. I mean, the way it worked out in the end, he, I heard through intermediaries. I mean, Chapo Guzman is not like a big reader of The New Yorker, but uh, <laughs> he ended up actually not, you know, the people around him liked that piece, weirdly okay. enough. So. Well, that's good. I make, guess make Chapo, make Chapo happy, you know. My gosh, right? Yeah, I mean, oh, I mean, this is the thing. If you, you you never want them, if it's people like that, you never want them to like the piece too much. But. That's true. That's true. Okay, so this is sort of my big question for you about the book, and it's the thing that I have been thinking the most about. And I don't know if you'll have an answer, but it's what's really made me curious. Is that obviously the Sacklers, at least in your reporting and every other things I've seen and read, they bear some responsibility to put it lightly, for the opioid crisis. But there's this whole other part of this story that has to do with the U.S. government and government institutions. And I'm curious about sort of like the blame and responsibility and like what it is about wanting to blame them solely when I feel like the FDA kind of fucked America over. <laughs> like, I feel like there are so many people who are and I'm not talking about like the other doctors or the prescribers. I'm talking about the government institutions that have failed us throughout. Like, what were your thoughts about kind of uncovering some of that stuff? 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I should say, just to be abundantly clear, and I say it in the book in a number of places, is like I don't, by any stretch of the imagination, blame the Sacklers solely for anything. Right, right, right. right. Uh, and it's funny because I think this is like a defense that they have, where they're like, people are trying to blame us for everything. And it's like, no, not for everything, um, but <laughs> but it's possible for you to, you know, have a great deal of blame along with lots of other people. I mean, this is the way I saw it. Um, it's a story about a family and their business. I think. Purdue Pharma was the tip of the spear. I yes. think that they they saw a universe in which doctors were pretty cautious about prescribing strong opioids to people, and they tried to reserve um, these drugs, which I think can be, can have great benefits in terms of relieving pain. But you know, the way things were pre oxycontin was doctors were pretty careful about prescribing them because they were worried about addiction. Right. So they reserved them for cases of severe pain. And the Sacklers and Purdue set out very deliberately to create a system in which um, these drugs are prescribed, like, you know, to all kinds of people for even moderate pain, um, kind of willy nilly. And the way in which they pulled that off was by saying, oh, they're not addictive. And let's try and change the minds of doctors about how addictive these drugs are. And they succeeded fabulously. Mm -hmm. And they made a ton of money. But also that's when, you know, after the introduction of OxyContin, you see prescribing habits change. And that's sort of where the opioid crisis is born. Now, did they do that alone? They didn't. And so part of what I wanted to tell the story of, and some of this is like bigger than not just the Sacklers and the opioid crisis, it's the United States, right? Like this is the country we live in is one in which big money compromises systems mm -hmm. and institutions that should be protecting us as citizens. And so, um, you know, the FDA was compromised. I, there's like a story I tell in the book about the main FDA official in charge of approving OxyContin, who as soon as he approves OxyContin, you know, a year later goes and works at Purdue Pharma. Uh, for three times his government salary. And when I sued the FDA to try and get that guy's emails, to try and get to the bottom of this, I got a judge in New York to order them to turn over thousands of pages of documents to me. And they said, oh, we don't have any of his stuff. So sorry. It was either lost or destroyed. Like, we don't know what's going on with that. So they share a huge amount of blame, I think. Um, similarly, the Department of Justice. I mean, I tell multiple stories in the book about the ways in which high-level political people uh, in the George W. Bush administration and also in the Trump administration were basically co-opted and they killed or softened um, the kinds of prosecutions that you would normally see. So if you think about the war on drugs, right, you think about like the way in which we approach, you think about mass incarceration, you think about the way in which we approach like retail drug dealing. Um, you know, there's a lot of states where if you if you're like a heroin dealer, dealing heroin out of your car, there's a two strike policy. So like if you get busted twice, you, you have a mandatory minimum. You're like, you're going away 10 right, years. Right. You know? Um, so part of the story I was trying to tell was that like, if you are a billionaire family with a big pharma company, um, in this case, a big pharma company that also pled guilty twice to federal criminal charges, right. like, the consequences are not the same. Like nobody goes to jail. Right. 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 Um, so it's, the opioid crisis is, is, is the opioid crisis is extremely complex. And I was not by any stretch of the imagination suggesting that um, the Sacklers alone bear the blame. Um, the sadder story to me is that the, I think we live in a country in which um, all of our systems are, are compromised by these 
types of elite big money interests. And um, and I, I do think that if you're if you're a billionaire, then and 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 you're the bad guy, you can still get away with it in the end. Right. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but just because we're recording this, and um, yesterday, Joe Biden's administration talked about um, the patents for these vaccines, and I wonder what you think about releasing the patents for the vaccines for COVID and what because let me go back a little bit. When I heard this news, my first thought after having just finished your book earlier this week was. I wonder what the implications will be in the future for these pharmaceutical companies. And is this the first step to kind of them losing so much power? And I wonder if you had any thoughts about that, given, I mean, you know so much more about pharmaceutical patents and stuff because of this book, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, look, it's been super complicated um, for me, even just emotionally, right, to be publishing a book in which, I mean, there's a story I tell in the book about how in the 1950s, Pfizer was basically bribing the head of antibiotics at the FDA. Um, Arthur Sackler, one of the original Sackler brothers, was kind of involved in this scheme. Um, and like, I just got my second Pfizer shot the other day. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's it's a strange feeling. Um, I, you know, I. it is amazing when you look into it, the degree to which the life cycle of a patent and the exclusivity that comes with a patent determines so much. There are all these places in my reporting on OxyContin where there'd be some random thing that the company does and you're trying to figure out why, and then you dig into it and it's like, Oh, they, you know, they thought if they did this, they could get an extra six months of patent life or, you know, they did this because the patent was about to run out. I do feel as though the, you know, the modern pharmaceutical industry really grew out of the Second World War. You get penicillin and penicillin wasn't patented. And um, so actually, when you get the kind of all these wonder drugs after the war, it's all these companies being like, well, penicillin's all good and fine, but, you know, you can't charge a huge premium for it. And right. so we need to find drugs that you can. To me, this is a kind of similar crisis. And on the one hand, I think we should all marvel at the fact that the pharmaceutical industry managed to produce these vaccines so quickly. I think the Biden administration has done an amazing job of rolling them out. The last thing I would ever want to do is have my book contribute to any like vaccine skepticism. Um, You know, I think everybody should be out there getting their jabs. Hard agree. Hard agree. This is a very pro vaccine podcast. Totally. And, (laughs) and I, and, and look, I mean, I do think that the, it's hard, right? Because I think that the, I think these issues are complicated and I, and I, and I think that it's, it would be, I, you know, I don't take a naive view of, of big pharma or their motivations. At the same time, I think you don't need to go from that to like total skepticism right. and, uh, you know, a sense that you're going to like go it alone. I would love to see the patents be released just because I feel as though this is a look for me. It's like it's not just what's happening in this country, but it's like you look what's happening in India. You know, I think we have a huge global crisis and anybody making any kind of um, I, I, there. Of course, the profit motive is going to be there for these companies. But anybody who's like thinking chiefly about the profit motive today, right now in 2021, I just find that incredibly grotesque. Yeah, I agree. I think it's so funny because when this whole pandemic started, it was like, we're all in this together. And like, we only way through is together. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, actually, we have the patents and go fuck yourself. Like, have a nice day, India. Good luck. Yeah. Anyways, that was sort of a non sequitur. But it's I mean, I think that's like a testament to your book is that. I I always find when a book is really good, it makes me think about things that are going on in the world 
in through the lens of the book, right? And like, this mm. is sort of a perfect lining up of, you know, these drug companies versus like P Purdue Pharma, et cetera. I, I do have sort of one more question in that realm of sort of blame, because it's something that I was thinking a lot about. And again, not that you're suggesting that the Sacklers are the only people to blame, but I feel like it's such an American thing, you know, American in quotes thing to want to kind of cleanly and completely assign blame to someone or something for like a much bigger problem. And so, you know, the Sacklers are such an obvious popular villain in this case, like they made Oxycontin, like that's the drug that we think is the one, like it led to fentanyl and heroin and whatever. They're the ones to blame sort of in this like very obvious way. But I'm wondering why like so overwhelmingly no one has actually just dropped the hammer on them so we can all pat our backs and like move on. You know what I mean? Like it just to me it seems so obvious that they would be punished in such an intense way to like make a point like America doesn't stand for this and then still like go and buy up like other, you know, other opioids from other companies. So I'm wondering why you think like they haven't just, you know, gotten this huge blame and we can move on and say, we did it. We cured the opioid crisis. Yeah. Okay. So, the, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. So the <laughs> first thing is, in terms of, no, no, absolutely. So in, in terms of we cured the opioid crisis, like the problems, the crisis is the magnitude of the crisis now is so extreme right. Right. that there's no solution in terms of accountability or any of that that's ever going to be a like commensurate to the need, right. um, you know, ne leaving aside the idea that you have 500,000 people who are dead. Right. Over the well, last I don't, few decades I, I don't want to suggest that I actually think we would, but I just feel like that's a very American thing to yes, be like, we're totally. going to blame this one group and say yes. that we fit like sort of right. like the Derek but Chauvin so, trial, that guilty verdict is like, now we've solved racism. Like right, exactly. cops are great. And, you know, yeah, so I'm just yeah. wondering kind of in that. No, I totally agree. And I think, and actually, you know, I think the Sacklers would probably argue like that they're being scapegoated and that there's a kind of an emotional, desire to like assign a villain and that um that's what's happened to them is that they're being asked to kind of uh take the blame for this whole complex crisis um you know so there's a few things one is that these are very canny billionaires with um very good politically plugged in lawyers around them who have figured out how to insulate the family from, um, you know, any real measure of accountability. Now, I think in the end, they're going to, they're going to give up several billion dollars toward helping remediate the opioid crisis. It'll be like 40 cents on the dollar in terms right. of what they've taken out. Um, and they'll walk away with billions more. Um, I think there's a reputational cost, but even the reputational cost, like I, part of the reason I wrote the New York article in 2017 was I was in, I was just like, this is crazy. All these institutions are still taking their money. Like everything, right, right. like it was not a secret. I mean, talk about breaking news. Like I was not breaking the news mm -hmm. that the Sacklers owned Purdue Pharma and Purdue Pharma marketed Oxycontin. That was known. That had been written about. What was bizarre to me was I was just like, there's this disconnect where, they're still going to ribbon cuttings and, you know, kind of blue chip uh, cocktail parties at the MoMA or whatever it is. Um, you know, they're, they're still kind of pillars of society. And it's weird to me that, that they haven't been forced to answer any questions about this. I think that that phase of this story is over. I think now they're, they're always going to kind of bear this taint. Um, but look, I think the, the one other thing I would say to your point about things that are specifically American is I think there's another aspect of this story, and maybe this helps answer your question, which is that 
there's also a very American strain that is all about individual responsibility and libertarianism mm. and basically says like in this country, like I can make an AR-15 in this country, like a, a weapon that is designed to shoot lots and lots and lots of bullets in a short period of time at very high velocity. It's designed to like kill lots of people quickly. Yes. And I can like sell that and market it. And then somebody goes out and they buy one and they kill lots of people. And I'm like, Hey, that's not on me. I just, you know, I just sold the thing. Right. It's on that person who pulled the trigger. I think there's a similar thing with drugs where I get emails every day from mostly from chronic pain patients who are like, stop writing about Oxycontin. Like I can handle it fine. I'm responsible. Mm -hmm. I responsibly take my medicine. Like there are these other irresponsible people who have caused this problem. And I think that's a, very powerful strain in American life. The idea that if you get people who are, um, you know, I would, I would argue victims and whose lives have fallen apart. There's this like very intense kind of judgmental thing that we do where we say like, that's on them. You know, um, you should blame that person. They need to get their shit together. Mm. And I, you know, I think that we've gotten better in terms of our rhetoric as a country and looking at these types of issues. Um, but, but I don't think that strain of thinking has gone away. I totally agree. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So I'm curious, and I don't know, you maybe not might not be able to tell me. So I'm just going to ask this. I'm going to shoot my shot. I'm going to do my investigative journalism ask thing. Away. <laughs> Is there anything that's not in the book that you wish could have been or you wish was that was removed for whatever reason? Good question. No. <laughs> no. I mean, it's actually sort of the opposite where the book has three sections mm-hmm. and the biggest decision that I made was to devote the whole first third of the book to the really to the life of Arthur Sackler, who dies before the introduction of OxyContin. He dies in 1987. And I think some readers and, and actually some reviewers have kind of called me out on that and been like, Keith makes a mistake in in devoting so much attention to the life of Arthur. And for me, that was the big signature choice that I made. And actually, the choice that I feel the most strongly about, like, I think it was that the was right my choice. favorite part of the book. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I feel I mean, like I think- that sets up the whole book. If you don't devote that much time to him, then you don't get all the parallels in the playbook. There's they no playbook. Later. Yeah, yeah. Right. totally. Well, I this hate is those my people. Is- I'm going to yell at those. Give me their good. names. I'm going to write some it. strongly I'll- worded letters. Right, right. I like that's what I, that's what I, that's what we need. The um, no, I mean, I I think that the so it was sort of the opposite where I think some people reading the book might say, God, why did you devote you know so much time to this guy who dies in 1987? And to me, it's a he's an amazing character, but he's not just like the random, interesting, eccentric old uncle. Like to me, there's everything that happens in his life is a kind of preamble for what happens later with OxyContin. I mean, I guess the only other thing I would say is that the the book ends in a way where we don't really know where mm-hmm. things are going to go. So there's, like, I suppose, a kind of slightly inconclusive quality there. But I actually feel okay about that because I think we kind of roughly know how it's going to end, which mm-hmm. is that they're, they're basically going to get away with it. I mean, they're never they're never going to have their good name, but they will walk away with their fortune. Nobody's going to jail. But so, and and so it's a kind of strange thing, right? Whereas with Say Nothing, it ended in this like almost Agatha Christie novel kind of way where it's like, it's sort of a whodunit and at the end you find out whodunit. Um, This is different. Like you, you know whodunit in this one from the beginning. Right, right, right. And you just kind of, you kind of watch them like just keep getting away with it. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm eagerly paying attention to any upcoming news from my the most exciting court in the land bankruptcy court exactly. <laughs> i can't wait i'm tuned in um <laughs> this question is something when i started reading the book this was the, one of the first questions i wrote down for you which is what does a legal review look like of this kind of book like in order for D- double day to want to publish and feel comfortable and you feeling comfortable putting your name on this and you know feeling confident that what's in it is accurate what sort of review does this book go through a really careful review. I mean, I um, have worked now with the same lawyer at Doubleday on the last two books. And actually with Say Nothing, I mean, given that I was I was like identifying somebody as a murderer who mm-hmm. had never been arrested or even questioned um, uh, and is still alive, um, there were legal issues there as well. Um, so, and, and in the case of the Sacklers, I mean, they really, you know, there's this lawyer who's been threatening to sue for the last couple of years. So, we were sort of on notice. Um, but the irony for me is like all of, all the legal threats did was made me 
it kind of redoubled my commitment to like mm. write, writing a really powerful book and making it as bulletproof as possible. So um, it was a really close legal review. Um, I think my lawyer at Doubleday, this guy Dan Novak, is wonderful, was probably more, he's probably more engaged in the nitty gritty than is often the case when a, mm. a, a lawyer kind of does a quick pass on a book. Um, we, of course, went to the family and also to Purdue Pharma with really extensive um, queries, like you know, more than 100 queries asking about specific things in the book. I had to hire a fact checker, which I did on my last book as well. I hired this um, this amazing woman, Julie Tate, who's she was part of the team that, that fact checked Barack Obama's book. Like she's incredible. Oh, wow. um, and, um, you know, that's one of these things where the publisher doesn't pay for it. You pay for it out of your own pocket. But I was very happy to do it because I wanted to make sure the book was um, was totally solid. So, yeah. you know, it, it like adds a layer to the process. And I think the really important thing for me was that I didn't want the reader to feel bogged down by legal caveats all over the place. Mm. I wanted, I wanted a certain, you know, a, a, there's going to be different kinds of readers. I wanted a reader to be able to just totally ignore the end notes of the book and just mm -hmm. purely engage with the story. But then you have, I don't know, there's like almost a hundred pages of end notes, right? So yeah. for another, another kind of reader, especially one who might be thinking about suing me or anybody who's like interested in getting into the nitty gritty, there's a ton of back matter that they can engage with. Right. Okay. We're going to kind of transition into your process a little bit more. There's just so much like in the content that I just was dying to talk to you about. But as far as the process goes, you wrote this book pretty fast and you wrote it during a pandemic. And I've been told slash seen a picture that you wrote it in your bed. So I'm sort of, I'm sort of curious, what the hell was this like for you? Yeah, <laughs> it was a weird experience. I mean, the... um the yeah and then the, the 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 other details i was like making a podcast at the same time oh right of but course the, um, yeah it was <laughs> and a weird, say nothing a you were like doing press for say nothing so like yeah, i just feel like you had yeah. a very busy year and somehow you also wrote a very detailed long like delicious book so i just i need i need answers how you how do you work so hard <laughs> i mean so I, I i think there's a few things here some of it is i um i love this work and it's what i've always wanted to do and I, I mean, to be perfectly candid, like it took me a long time to figure out how to have this career. Like mm. I took me a long time to break into magazines. I went to grad school. I went to law school. It looked like I might have to become a lawyer. Even when I started writing for the New Yorker, I was freelance for six years. I had other, jo other jobs that I was doing to help subsidize the journalism. Like I didn't go on staff. I, by the time I went on staff at the New Yorker and I was a full-time New Yorker writer, I was, I think 36 years old and I had two kids. And, um, so if there, if I do this stuff with like a certain urgency now, it's partially just because I feel like I've, you know, it's like my, it's like I spent years and years and years buying lottery tickets and then one of them worked out. And mm. um, so just having the opportunity to do this work feels like a privilege to me. And, um, and I, I, I'm keenly aware that like, you know, I may not, I may not have this luxury for my whole life or my whole career. And so um, I want to make the most of it um, while I have the chance. So there's a kind of urgency that I mm -hmm. feel in doing this work. Um, and I love it. It's not, it doesn't feel like work. And I think my wife and kids would probably grumble about this, right? But it's like for me, um, you know, the idea of like a vacation on a beach, which I can't be doing any work at all, <laughs> um, is actually, you know, like for a day or two, it's great. But then I want to be getting back to it, not because I'm neurotic or, or 
or a workaholic just because I love this stuff. It's like what I would be doing, you know, with my free time if you gave me the choice. Um, the pandemic was weird because I did have a really fun 2020 plan because like Say Nothing was being published in a bunch of other countries and I was going to go and do like, you know, like I was going to go to like the like the Paris launch of Say Nothing mm. and like go on like a Scandinavian book tour and all this cool stuff and <laughs> all that stuff just got wiped away. Yeah. And then we, there's only, we have one home office that my wife and I share and she has a, she's a lawyer and has like a proper job. So there was never really any question that <laughs> if one of us was going to get the desktop, it was going to be her. So I ended up on the bed, but, but it worked. Yeah. I have to ask you. So in that picture of you on the bed, you're wearing like a, a hoodie and it has a soccer emblem on it. And I want uh -huh. to know, are you a soccer fan and who is your team? Oh God. Um, <laughs> I am. So my kids are both big soccer fans and soccer players. And that is my, that is my, um, that's for the team that they, they both oh, play on the club gosh. team that they both. So I, I'm going to diplomatically, one of my kids is a, is a man United fan and the other is a man city fan. So I will. We're man city fans in this house. <laughs> okay. All right. So I will, I will dip diplomatically say that I'm a fan just, just of their teams. Uh, that's and, so funny. <laughs> I have to tell you, so I did a little investigative journalism because I tried to figure out what sweatshirt that was. And my brother is a huge soccer fan. And I sent him the picture and I was like, what team is that? And he was like, well, it looks like it could just be like a kid's team. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, I was like, there's no way. It's got to be a real team. You're an idiot. And so you got it right. And then I also yeah. reached out to Clint Smith, who you, who I know is a huge soccer fan that you've done an event with. And I was like, do you know if Patrick Radden Keefe is a soccer fan? Cause he has a soccer. And he was like, I don't know. I can't wait to hear what you uncover. That's too funny. Yeah. So it's, I can, I can reveal to you that it is F fc westchester uh, which is like the westchester county uh uh kids team that my, my sons play on breaking news by the stacks exactly. podcast exactly <laughs> so in addition to or i guess in yeah in addition to writing in your bed on your bed um one of the things i always like to ask people is about sort of your writing setup so aside from being on your bed do you have music going do you have any snacks or beverages that you are relying on when you write do you have any rituals like what is that process for you um i mean it's you know i had much more of a process before i had kids and then as as you've discovered no doubt yeah. like they just <laughs> the, you know everything changes and suddenly you're just kind of seizing the opportunities whenever you can um i mean best case scenario i like a really long runway i'm definitely one of those people who <laughs> if it's like you know i have a dentist appointment at two o'clock i'm like oh well there goes the day like yeah. i won't be able to get anything done you know <laughs> um so ideally i have a you know, I like to write in the morning. Um, I will wake up really early often. And, um, but it's hard because again, now I have to wake up and like make breakfast for my kids and take them to school. But the, um, I do listen to music. Um, and I drink a lot of, uh, very strong espresso. Um, right. and that's, you know, that's pretty much it, but it's like, it all happens on a laptop. So, um, I'll, and I like to move around. Like I'll go to the New Yorker. I'll go to the public library. I mean, again, in the pandemic, I haven't been right. going anywhere. But um, I like to kind of move around and you know, have change of scene. I love that. Um, this is also a very important question. What is a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, there's so many. I'm terrible. Um, uh, <laughs> you name it. I mean, <laughs> parallel. Oh, oh yeah, that's hard because it's the R's and the L's. How many? Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Who knows? I'm a terrible right. speller, so I like to ask this question just to make myself feel better. Like, like writers, they're just as stupid You're as you. You're not alone. You are not <laughs> yeah. alone. Yeah. Um, I do. This is, you know, you wrote Say Nothing. It came out in 2019, 18, mm-hmm. 19, 19, 19. I can't remember. Um, yeah, that's right. Because I read it in 19 when the boys came. And it was a huge success in a kind of crazy way like it was everywhere and everyone was talking about it and i'm wondering if that changed the way that you approached writing empire of pain versus going from a book like after having so much critical acclaim versus some of your earlier books that weren't as like everywhere still great but not as everywhere so i'm wondering if anything changed for you in the way that you approached putting the book out not really. I mean, it did look in terms of the outside the process of writing and reporting, it did change things, right? In the sense that the, um, that the, I had a kind of confidence that this book would get, mm. um, that people would pick it up and people would review it that I didn't necessarily have with Say Nothing. Um, and, but in terms of the writing, no, it's just the work, you know? Yeah. And it's funny because it's like I look back at, I've written four books. The first book was this book, Chatter, that I wrote when I was really young. And, um, you know, I wrote the best book I could at the time. It was a really hard subject. And I was still trying to kind of figure out mm-hmm. how, to, how to be a writer and, how, and the kind of a writer I wanted to be. And, um, but The Snakehead, the book that came out after that, which came out in 2000 and, um, uh, 2009, I think that's a book I'm still really proud of. I think it actually sits pretty comfortably with these two other ones. The approach is very, very similar. The storytelling is, it's a very different subject, but similar. But I mean, that book, like, you know, it, 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 it did fairly well critically, but it was never a huge hit or anything. Um, so to me, it's just, you know, you realize like sometimes, sometimes, um, sometimes the light shines on you and sometimes it doesn't, but you just kind of got to keep doing the work. Um, I, I, you know, I will say one thing that I don't have, and I know some writers who shall remain nameless, but I know writers who've had books that came out that were huge hits and they then felt quite inhibited mm-hmm. about what came next. And I did not have that at all. I mean, my expectation was, you know, there'll be some people who are like, oh, this isn't as good as Say Nothing or it's different or um, I did. That was just not a, I don't have hangups like that. I'm not thinking about um uh, like trying to top myself or anything like that. I'm just trying to think about getting into the next thing and, yeah. you know, kind of keep putting one foot in front of the other. I wonder if that also comes from your background in writing so regularly for a magazine where it's like, you have to write the next thing, you know, yes. like there is no, if you're, if you were only an author um, and you were reliant on your books, you probably would feel more stress, but you're like, I got to turn in another thing. Like I got another deadline. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I've always, I mean, over the years I've had these conversations where it's like, I would rather, um, you know, I'd rather write a B plus piece and just be working and get something out there than kind of, you know, clutch my pearls and like worry right. that I don't have an A plus piece and then spend a year not doing anything, you know? Yeah. What was it like? we're kind of in a switch, but what was it like for you doing your podcast, uh, Winds of Change? Because that's really different than um, writing. But I think, you know, as someone who pretends to be a journalist, there's definitely some journalism involved in what you did with that podcast. It's, is it eight episodes? It's eight episodes. Eight yeah. episodes. Yeah. Um, so what was that like for you, the form versus the written word? And, and did you like it? 
I loved it. It was magic. It was just magic. Um, the, I mean, for a bunch of reasons, it was a story that I felt was well suited to a podcast. But for me, the experience of working with a team of collaborators rather than a lot, pretty much alone, right? Um, it's incredible. We traveled around the world and did all these interviews, and we, you know, it was a very specific kind of thing. This podcast, it, it was unlike. Um, you know, it was, it was sort of quite a, quite a unique idea. And so a lot of what we were doing was trying to kind of fight to, to not let it become too generically one thing or another and just be itself. And, um, the finished product was really, it was like, I would say it was exactly what I had had in mind, but it was so much better because of the alchemy of collaborating, right. Mm. Where I just had these brilliant producers and editor and composers and all that. And then the reception was wonderful. I mean, people respond to audio, like more people listen to Wind of Change than will ever read anything that I write. And <laughs> um, and and they engage with it in a different way. Like a lot of people would listen to, you know, eight hours of audio in the first day or right. two. So that's, it was just a very, it was very, it was thrilling, but very different for me to kind of feel the way in which like people metabolize a podcast. Will you do more? Yes, but... Um, but probably not immediately. I'm not going to do more just to do more. Like when the right idea presents itself, I will. Yeah. Okay. I'll take that. For people who love Empire of Pain, what other books would you recommend to them? Um, so in terms of sort of opioid crisis stuff, I mean, Sam Quinones' book, uh, Dreamland, is really amazing and tells an incredible story. Beth Macy's book, Dope Sick, is great. Uh, Barry Meyer's book was the, kind of the original, um, like the kind of OG opioid crisis Purdue Pharma book painkiller. And then there's a really incredible book by a guy named Travis Reeder called In Pain, which sort of looks more broadly at the issue of pain and, and how we deal with it. And it's, it's just a stunning book. I love it. Okay. Last one. If you could have one person dead or alive, read Empire of Pain, who would you want that to be? Arthur Sackler. Mm, great answer. Okay. Everyone, go get the book. It's called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty by Patrick Radden Keith. Patrick, Thank you so, so much for being here. This was incredible. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And everyone else will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Patrick for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Michael Goldsmith for making this episode possible. Our May book club pick is Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. We will discuss the book on Wednesday, May 26th with author Jenny Lee. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 